This is episode number seven with Liesl Tesh. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on your impactful journey. This episode is an absolute ripper. Strap in for what is a roller coaster of a journey. Lisa and I had some big belly laughs, but Lisa also broke into tears a few times as she delved into some vulnerable moments in her life that have helped shape the amazing human she is today. She's an extremely proud and passionate woman. Now, I never thought Brett Robbo from Cobar would be doing any of his podcast interviews in Parliament House in Sydney, but that's exactly where this one took place. Lisa Tesh is an incomplete paraplegic. She's a seven-time Paralympian in the sports of wheelchair basketball and sailing. She's a two-time Paralympic gold medalist, also an entrepreneur, humanitarian, and just recently become a politician. In this episode, you will learn how sport is literally saving and changing people's lives around the world and how Liesl is a major player in this legacy. You will learn the power of mentors and how to create a mindset of acceptance and growth. We also talk about when Liesl was robbed at gunpoint in Rio, how breaking her back at age 19 didn't ever slow her down, and what personal challenges she faces to remain authentic in her new role as a politician. Liesl Tesh, thanks for joining us on Your Life of Impact. Absolutely. Fabulous, treasured opportunity and it's a privilege. Look where we are. We are sitting in your new office in at Parliament House in Sydney. Now, this is a new environment for you, but something that's going to be very regular. Tell us a little bit about your new space. I am still overwhelmed. Like I'm on my L plates, seriously, <laughs> as a, a representative of the community. Like it's one thing to put on the green and gold and wheel out or sail out and represent your country. But it's another thing to actually be elected to represent your community. So it's an incredible privilege and an honour, but it's also a huge responsibility and a pressure to do the role that my community have elected me to do and to learn what that role actually is. Like there's no handbook for being a politician and all of us come in here passionate about improving our community from all different walks of life. So really learning how I go about best to make changes in my community is my my responsibility now. Well, we were just having a quick chat before we started uh, the actual recording of this podcast and and it was very enlightening to hear that you have an open door policy and I think you're going to have some uh, fun adventures in your new role here. Absolutely. It's almost like this is a choose your own adventure because you don't know who's going to walk through the door in the next five minutes and what their issue is going to be that you are then responsible for working to help to resolve. So it really is quite an exciting time that I have already and times ahead. But I feel like probably the only main thing that will change for you being in this environment compared to the last time I was in uh, in an environment with you was at the Rio 26 Paralympic Games and you were wearing your Australian uniform. It's obviously a very different uniform you're wearing now. I feel like that's the only thing that's going to change. I feel like the true Liesl Tesh will still shine in your new position here in Parliament. 
Thank you very much. And it has been an amazing journey. And I think as well as being the Paralympian, I've been a school teacher, like as a school teacher for 25 years is really embedded into someone's identity. And so when I first put my hand up to take on this role, I thought, can I really do this once I had the legal advice that I had to um, take leave without pay for the campaign and then actually resign from my position as a teacher after 25 years. I thought, can I actually do this? And so I really felt like my heart was being ripped out for about a week. And then I realised as I'm working through the campaign that I'm actually meeting with the students that I've been teaching for my life and growing up with those students now in the local community and developing the community together with those students. So it's it's a different space, but I'll be teaching and leading and working with those students and guiding them to create a better community in the future, which is a privilege, an Absolutely. absolute privilege. Yeah, yeah, you've already got that, that community connection deeply. Mm. But I believe it was a bit of uh, not everyone was uh, fully supportive of Liesl Tesh coming into the new role. I did read a few articles that there was a bit of an uproar about that. Yeah, it was pretty tough and it was a difficult situation with Cathy Smith who's retired due to ill health and so there wasn't the normal process of um, elections within the Labor Party that usually happens because of the suddenness of her retirement and the, the need to actually put someone in place really quickly. So I've been in the party for a while and I've sort of been tapped on the shoulder a couple of times to take on leadership roles but I've always had the Paralympic the Paralympics as my top priority so actually said no so when Kathy's letter arrived in the post at my place usually I read everything and then I file it in the file but I actually picked that up and put it on the shelf and I'd done some work with Kathy in the past in various shapes and forms and I think I knew in my heart something was about to change. And is it a three-year term? It's For me, it was a by-election coming in. So because Cathy is unwell, I've actually come in to replace. So it's only two years until the next state election. So it's a two-year project and then coming into another four-year term after that if I play the cards right. <laughs> well, I was going to say, if it's a three or four-year term, you'd be used to that with uh, Paralympic cycles and your preparation. So a two-year term would be like half a Paralympic well, cycle. It's, it's interesting. <laughs> I've come from wheelchair basketball into sailing and wheelchair basketball, we had like the two-year world champs and then the two-year Paralympics. And then all of a sudden, I've come into sailing where you have this World Cup. So you've got these random events all over the place. And it took me quite a while to adjust. But it's also really interesting coming in here and even saying to my colleagues, like, this place operates in a quadrennium. And they're not used to that term quadrennium, which we in the Paralympics or Olympics is part of our conversation. So realistically, I'm used to working, 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 and then peaking for that event and then getting on with the job again. So it's almost like I've trained to be in this quadrennium space. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing with your planning and your visions over those quadrenniums. And I can imagine at the end of this two years, you're ready to peak. So if if you want it, I imagine it'll be there for the taking for you. You'll do all the hard work. It's absolutely. And it's also, I think, like I've lived my life with events coming up, events coming up and planning for particular events. So now it's actually quite easy to see something that's needed in our community and put an event in place that delivers some community needs. And I've sort of got them plotted. I've got the big calendar, like I do in my sporting life, plotted out over the wall of our office with events and building events and community-based needs to deliver in the community in the lead up to the next election. I mean, I've got two years to deliver to the community. What happens after that, we'll wait and see. Now, Lisa, we've been teammates in Beijing, Beijing (laughs) Paralympics, also the uh, London 2012 Paralympics and just recently the Rio Paralympics that we'll get into. But before we dive into your uh, sporting career a bit, take us back. You were born in Brisbane. Yep. And you grew up in, did you live some time in New Zealand? We moved to New Zealand. My dad's a Queenslander and I was three months old when we moved to New Zealand to be with mum's family over there in a pretty alternative 
environment on the beach. Dad made a caravan we lived in with five cats, three goats, a rabbit and a pig and we sort of moved around beachside communities and did lots of harvesting from nature and a pretty alternative life till we moved back to Lake Macquarie when I was seven, seven, seven. years old. <laughs> with, with a younger sister in tow. So, yeah, so Newcastle was then the home base. Um, we lived on the shores of Lake Macquarie and it was there that I crashed my bicycle and broke my back when I was 19 and a uni student. So And so Newcastle was sort of part of my life, Newcastle Uni, before I took off to Sydney to teach. You mentioned your dad there. How influential were your parents for you growing up? Oh, beautiful major influences. Both were very different. Like I, retrospectively, you go, how are you two together? But obviously they were. Um, dad was – I mean, both my parents were radical environmentalists and really passionate about nature and looking after the environment. And retrospectively, I wish in clearing out their things since I've both passed, I'd actually kept all their letters to politicians because through my childhood we had a long history about writing to politicians about – community and environmental concerns. So dad was environmentalist. He also did a lot of work doing sustainable. He was an architect, um, designed for sustainable, what we call now sustainable, affordable housing. But back then it was just this radical bloke who really didn't like working for the capitalist economy and design mud brick houses for the nuns and Nautilus ferro cement things that were orientated to the sun and underground things that would have been fantastic in this day and age, but nearly never really came into reality of fruition when he was working on them. It sounds like a very interesting upbringing to be around. How much of that kind of lifestyle or those um, visions from your parents, how, how much has that come into your life as you've grown? I think as a kid, we never lived inside the box. So we're always taught to think creatively and possibil- like in a world of possibility. Mum was a potter who did some nursing with aged care to sort of make ends meet when they separated and needed some money along the way. So both my parents come from a really arty out there background and like I suppose working within the framework of society wasn't their top priority. So we had a beautiful childhood and I think given a freedom of thinking that is different to the normal framework. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. That's mm. what creativity is, that freedom of thinking. Mm. That's brilliant. Yeah. Now, you uh, you were obviously pretty active growing up, very sporty uh, through your younger years. Tell us a little bit about that and then take us to the age of 19 that you just mentioned previously. Oh, we like we grew on up on the shore – Lake Macquarie so I thought every kid had to go fishing before school till I realised that not everybody did when I was about 15 and prawning <laughs> when the moon was right and rowing out to get the crab traps and swimming around with the dog for hours and hours on end and then sailing we had to come home Paul Bannum had to be home when the streetlights came on. We had to be home in time for the ABC News. So <laughs> that was just the rules as a kid and played netball, rep netball until through school I was introduced to basketball and left netball behind and just fell in love with the sport of basketball. I was that kid in the class that got into every single sport to get out of class and I played sport like I'd, all the carnivals. I just loved the sporty side of things. So went on to uni, continued sailing, rode my bicycle everywhere, everywhere, everywhere and played rep basketball for uni before – I crashed and pushed and broke my back when I was 19. How – you say that just so nonchalant, <laughs> but what what actually happened there when you – with your bike accident? I – like same mountain bike that I was planning to go on a big ride into Newcastle, like a 40K ride, but my girlfriend and I had been out the night before. I had some stuff to take home to mum's place, which was probably like a 3K ride, if that. And I had a pair of shoes in a plastic bag on the handlebars. I don't remember what happened. No car involved. I swerved over the wrong side of the road. My bike hit the gutter and it was completely fine. I somersaulted over the handlebars, fell down about two metres – and landed on my bottom and all the vertebrae on my back 
crushed and so L1 cut into my spinal cord. But we didn't know that at the time but I was really lucky, found by an old lady lived over the road and she was a nurse and the nurse came and said to me, is there any, or, or the old lady's daughter lived over the road and the nurse came and said to me, is there any tingling in your hands or feet? So straight away I was identified as a spinal cord injury and not moved around. So I think that's now I'm at, like years down the track. It took me about... Hmm, probably about 10 months to get back on my feet initially I had no feeling or movement from the waist down and I started to get bits of feeling and bits of movement and so lots of physio and I walk but not perfectly and use a chair to get around long distances. And how was that time for you as a 19 year old able-bodied very active person to then being hospitalised with a spinal cord injury, how was it for you mentally? It's interesting. Now, you asked me that question. I see myself very, very clearly lying in that big white hospital bed and the smell of the hospital out there at La Perouse. Um, I actually feel like I was possibly painfully active while I was in bed, even though I had to be completely still. So I had a weight in one hand to try and get things. I remember one time there was a dog on the bed that come in from outside. Like I ate mangoes in bed and would ask the nurse, nurse, can you clean my sheets after this? Um, <laughs> and then I had a little basketball ring and I used to shoot hoops to initially the end at the foot of the bed and then the curtain rail. So I was fairly whilst I was meant to be lying very, very still. I think I was fairly active while I was being there. But I also had quite a reflective time and I had a I organised from the social workers to have a typewriter on a slope and I learned to type because I thought, well, I'm trapped here. Like it was before the ages of computers. Like I may as well learn something. So I learned to type but I also reflected on what I was going through and those notes are still in the drawer and I haven't looked at them. Wow. So I actually wonder... Yeah, like if I purged all my emotional stuff, like, and then by the time I got up eight weeks later, mate, I was ready to rock and roll and make the most of this new life. It's quite an interesting, I wasn't going to let lie there and, I don't know, wait for life to roll over me, that's for sure. Where does that resilience come from? Where does that mentality come from that there's such this, this massive change in your life and yet you don't let it overrule you you almost use it as your your advantage to say you know what this is a challenge and I'm going to kick this challenge in the ass and make the most of it I think and that's probably a lot to do with the family support and the upbringing that I had that anything was possible like we can just dream something and then it's real like we can dream and move to Australia and live in a boat shed and dad's dream that we go and live on a houseboat like I think okay we just need to make the most of the opportunity and our opportunity we weren't wealthy we didn't have great resources but we made the most of our life like the family taught me to make the most of life. So, and also I think while I was in hospital, that basketball thing, like my rep basketball mates gave me that little basketball and then the wheelchair, a couple of wheelchair users, Lisa Onion and Nick Morozov came into the hospital and said something about wheelchair basketball. And Craig Jarvis, who we're still great mates, who's on the board at Wheelchair Sports New South Wales, said, we're going to introduce, take you out to wheelchair basketball. And so in the very early days of being up and out of bed, I was taken out to Mount Druitt and into the wheelchair sports stadium out there to look at wheelchair basketball for the first time ever. And it was 1988. No one even knew what Paralympic sport was back then. And I wheeled in there and there's people, like it was the 80s, fluoro wheelchairs, having fun, going fast with boyfriends and lives and jobs. And to me, it was like, it was really clear that, this doesn't have to change my life. This is not going to stop me. So you were essentially exposed to the uh, opportunities of your new life in very early days. Yeah, and I think, for, yeah, because my old life had prepared me and put that in place, like a basketball, like it was pretty lucky that, oh, there's basketball, okay, it's just a slightly different shape. Um, 
here it is, let's go. So that came on and then the social worker said, now, Lisa, you're going to become a pensioner. I'm like, what does that mean? You get paid to go to uni. I'm like, unreal compared to cleaning my mum's friends' houses. Plus I got this ticket to go on the train from Newcastle to Mount Druitt, which was basketball training for three bucks. So I, off I'd go out to Mount Druitt every Thursday night, finish up there like at 10.30 and catch the train home to Newcastle and off I'd go to uni the next day. So I feel like there were lots of things in place and it was probably, it was just, it wasn't, a challenge it was just what I did it was just this is what I want to do and this is what I'm going to do and you obviously uh absolutely loved it because you've now represented Australia in seven Paralympic Games your first one in 1992 was it Barcelona yeah just to let you know I was six years old then that's all right. Well, I, just to let you know, I'm actually organised to have drinks with Lisa Runyon, who I played in in that team, um, and she's 50 this year. <laughs> Shout out to Lisa. Fantastic. <laughs> Only halfway. <laughs> so you represent Australia in seven Paralympic Games, but your first medal was actually in the Sydney 2000 Paralympics in wheelchair basketball. What a way to start your medal hall in Paralympic Games at, at a home Paralympics. It, yeah, like I think, like what an absolute privilege to play in front of the home crowd and like Barcelona in 92, I don't know if anyone even knew it was on over there, um, Atlanta in 96. But in the meantime, I'd actually finished uni and I was teaching out in Western Sydney and I told my boss in Western Sydney that I wouldn't be on at work the day that Sydney 2000 was announced. Mate, I was in no state to be at work. We having, like I was partying with the rest of Sydney when they said the winner is Sydney. But I think as Paralympic athletes, we really didn't know what was going to happen and also that we were responsible for the journey of educating the people of Sydney and the people of Australia what a Paralympics was actually all about and working with the Sydney 2000 Paralympic Organising Committee to get people to actually come to the Games and make the Games accessible. So for the first time, I think ever in Paralympic history, it's pretty proud to say that Sydney 2000 changed the Paralympics forever with packed houses and like full stadiums and people... And I think also for me, the young people that came and watched, so we filled up the stadiums with school kids and those young people didn't ask what's wrong with that lady. They asked, I get emotional just talking about it, like they ask, what sport does that person do? And so it changed the attitude of people towards people with disabilities about possibility rather than disability. And those kids are now employers and employees in the future in this country. And I think so sport, I think, has made a big footprint in this city. That's phenomenal. I've never heard it be spoken about in such uh, heartfelt <laughs> passion before. Yeah. But, you know, being a bit younger and uh, experiencing it from a television out in Cobar, <laughs> I wasn't sort of a part of it. But for you to be a part of this massive change, and that's what we'll speak about throughout this this chat, I can see <laughs> and hear it within you how much that really means to you. And that, that Sydney 2000 was like planting a, a big seed for the change in Paralympic sport and how it's it perceived. It was, and I think also like... I now talk to lots of people I'm exposed, like even in this role I've spoken with Michael Knight who was the big leader at that time and now we're sort of co-colleagues in this role in, in politics. But the change that came about as a result of that and the people that are involved in that have had, like their hearts have been touched and so you speak to any volunteer that was involved in City 2000 and they talk of this time of the Games, there was a, a shift in the city and even the people who watch the games, it's a shift in the city and I think that's a really positive place for people with disabilities. So much pride and you see people, you speak of the volunteers, there's still, <laughs> um, 
Sorry, do you want a tissue? No, it's all right. I'll get over myself. It's all right. <laughs> There's, uh, you know, you still see the proud volunteers wearing their uniform. I mean, it's 2017 now. It's 17 years ago and I still see people wearing their volunteer. I still meet with volunteers teams from Sydney 2000 for various things. And, you know, some of those groups are still volunteering across our city with various things. A few 17 years on. It's a pretty, I think, pretty powerful Oh, I don't know. It's not a concept. It's just I think it's a sh- an attitudinal shift in possibility and people are still carrying carrying that torch, I think, today. So that's a pretty nice place to be. It's, you know, the impact of sport in communities is so massive and people don't sort of realise the, the flow-on effect of that. Absolutely. And I might just tell you, there's a couple of stories that come out of the game. So a, te- a community from Melbourne fundraised and drove a bus up to watch the games and in amongst that team was a little girl who's a double amputee and another girl who's above knee amputee and I signed their legs I'm emotional about these two Kathleen O'Kelly Kennedy and Brady Keane have played for the gliders since then and I met Sarah Stewart who used a walking stick in the crowd and who then I gave an old secondhand wheelchair and she's become a teammate and a really good friend so I really also opened the opportunities for lots of people with disabilities to be involved in sport in a space they didn't realise existed. Yeah, that's phenomenal. You speak about a few athletes there, like you said, that have gone on to play <laughs> for Australia. Athletes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's phenomenal. So moving on from uh, Sydney 2000, you went on to win another silver medal. So you won silver at, in Sydney and you went on to Athens to win a silver medal in wheelchair basketball. Yep. Beijing was a bronze medal in yep. wheelchair basketball. 2012 Paralympics in London, you've transferred to a new sport of sailing and uh, the results are phenomenal. Can you tell us why the transition, but also take us into the massive challenges that you had in London? Absolutely, yeah. So coming after Sydney 2000, I was invited to play in Europe. So I competed in Europe in the men's league for five years, playing wheelchair basketball in Spain and then three years in Italy and a year in France. And I'd come home from that to train for Beijing and the learning curve had sort of flattened out. And in amongst, after uh, in 2000, must have been 2009, so after Beijing, it's like, okay, I can do this I can do this basketball thing. It's sort of what I do. But there was an invitation to try out for a spot on the Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race with Sailors with Disabilities. And initially, like I'd moved from Paris to Woi Woi and things were, what do I do? Um, <laughs> and initially I thought, no, that's ridiculous. People get killed in the Sydney to Hobart. It's very dangerous, yada, yada, yada. It's too big for me. And then there's another email saying, would you like to do a twilight sail with the Sailors with Disabilities group on Sydney Harbour. So I'm like, oh, you bring that on on a 54-foot yacht. And we went, we got down to the wharf and there's a TV crew saying, how does it feel to be trying out? And I'm like, I'm so not. And then we went out through the heads and we came back and I said, what do I have to do to try out? And I spent the next three months sort of almost pushing people with disabilities off the boat to get the gig to Hobart. And sailed to Hobart and absolutely fell in love with sailing. It's fantastic. And Dan Fitzgibbon, who won a silver in Beijing, wasn't getting on with his teammate all that well and he saw the documentary of this wheelchair basketballer in the Sydney to Hobart and rang me and said do you want to go for a sale and in my head this is 2009 I actually thought to myself well imagine Rio 2016 sailing like what a like a far away remote possibility and I went down to the wharf to meet Fitzy 
And I'd read the book on how to trim the jib, which is like the little sail at the front. And I went to shake Dan's hand and Dad's a quadriplegic. And he put his hand up on thing. All I'm thinking is nothing about like he's got a, a hand that doesn't work all that well. I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'll be trimming the mane as well as the jib. And I didn't read about how to trim the mane. And then I looked at the boat and thought it's got a spinnaker, which is that big Australian flag thing that hangs out the front. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to be doing the spinnaker as well. And we went for a, we went for a pretty mad sail. It was fantastic. Like I had a ball and got back to the wharf and Fitzy said, do you want to come to Miami next week? And I said, yes. And so we took off to Miami. Like I had no money in the whole wide world. I stayed in the dodgiest place in this part of Coconut Grove that you probably don't want to know about. Um, And we won our first three regattas and I came back and in my head I was still Rio 2016 possibly sailing and went down to the IIS as a basketballer, training, training. And Chris Nunn, who you know, called me upstairs and said, Tashi, what are you going to do? Nanny, like, what's the question? He said, you're going to have a go at this sailing. I'm like, yeah, like, yeah. And he said, for London? I'm like, nanny, pressure's on. And I had a big chat to him, retired from basketball and thought with Fitzy, yeah, we can have a go at this crazy sailing thing, and which is what we did, journey to London. And, and you qualified for London. We qualified for London. We qualified pretty easily for London. We had a pretty night. We had a pretty much a dream run through to London. Like Dan is an absolutely phenomenal powerhouse sailing brain. He's phenomenal. And so we had also a really great support team, fantastic coach and all the preparation that we needed to do for London. So, yeah, off we – with a couple of other – like with a bit of a heavy heart heading to London. My mum was really sick in the lead up to the games and we had the family discussion about – do I go, don't I go? And, of course, parents only want the best thing in the whole wide world for their kids. So off I went to London with a view to coming home immediately after the last race. And we raced the first race or the first day, which is two races in sailing in London. And I came back and I had the ice bath, freezing cold, so I'm in bed with a hot water bottle trying to get my core body temperature back to normal. And the phone rings and it's my sister to tell me that mum's passed away. Oh, I'm going to cry again. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. So... I'm bawling my eyes out and I couldn't get Skype in my room. So I'm sitting on the stairs of the room next door talking to my family who are in the room with my mum, two o'clock in the morning in Australia, bawling my eyes out. And Fitzy came back from the food hall and said, Tashi, I understand that the games is over. I said, Fitzy, more than anything else in the whole world, mum wants us to compete. Mum wants us to do our very best. So that gold medal probably is still the most precious thing in the whole wide world as far as round bits of medal goes for me. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, you, oh. you did push through, and it was only was it a few days later? Yeah, the, like five days later, we won the Coltie. Won yeah. the gold medal. <laughs> what an amazing yeah. effort for you to be able to turn around. I can understand the emotions coming through now. I couldn't <laughs> couldn't begin to try and understand the emotions through that five day period, and then again standing on the podium when you had won the gold. Yeah, like it's just, and I just think our parents forever teaching us. What I think Mum taught us: it's not about your physical capacity it's about what you want to choose with, to do with your mind like and I could have made up all the excuses in the world and not done it but with the right support structures around us which was the Australian Paralympic Committee and our team and Fitzy like we'd done all the preparation we needed to do we had the skills we needed to do so mum's departure from this world was not going to be an excuse and it's a pretty proud round round goldie absolutely she'd be <laughs> extremely proud of that yeah. being a team member in uh in london when we heard the news and then saw you turn around and win that gold medal it was the most uplifting thing that could <laughs> ever happen within a within any team environment but within a paralympic team environment you just shone your light and proved to everyone 
that was there that anything is possible. Thank you. It was amazing. And there was no choice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a great mindset. You've you've nailed it. There was no choice. Like yeah. you said, you were taught to create that resiliency and yeah. and you knew that that's what your mum would have wanted. Yeah. But, but to be able to actually take action and do that, that's a whole new and level. And pull it off. And I think that's about the preparation. Like that's about the hard yards that you're doing in life to get you ready to perform when the time is that you need to perform as well. Like I've not really thought about that, but we'd done everything we needed to do and we just kept doing it was about the process it wasn't about the result it was about the processes and the process there was a hiccup like I'm glad that happened and then even in Rio there was another hiccup with that being held hostage not hostage but held at gunpoint and getting my bike robbed well I was just about to go through that so you, we, we fast forward to Rio 2016 we have a Paralympics without an incident <laughs> so tell us what happened there in Rio and this was before this was a leading this event was, a, was month, it? a month out from the games mm-hmm. and like we'd had all the safety alerts and we knew how risky the city was and we're doing the right thing and we'd go for a ride like I went for a ride with the physio in the morning and we lived on the beachfront and there was a bit of a park that was a dangerous area that we really were careful to avoid and go through that in groups and we'd come back through the park and we're actually just heading down the footpath across the road from our apartment and this guy jumps out from behind a bus stop with a gun and I was in front Sarah was following me on the bike and I just stopped Sarah actually crashed into the back of me because her bike had rubbish brakes but this guy and he initially asked for money and I had no money, no phone or anything on me. I lifted up my shirt, said nothing. And then he said something else. I don't know what he said in Portuguese. Then he just pushed me on the shoulder and grabbed my bicycle and just took off into the park. And the guy who was behind with Sarah didn't have a gun, but he did the same thing and they just rode off on our bicycles. And that's just how it was. How did that make you feel? Actually, whilst it was happening, initially he held the gun at my legs. I'm thinking, well, my legs aren't very useful. So, like, in the big scheme, like, you shoot me in the legs, like, I can manage. And I've got lots of friends who are double amputees, they can manage. Um, but then he held it up at me and I'm like, whoa. And then half my brain was thinking, well, this is really serious. But another half of my brain was thinking, well, actually, we knew this was going to happen and this is what poverty actually looks like. Like, I've done a lot of work in developing countries. We knew the risk and I knew the risk that was involved. Um, and that was the reality. So, and Sarah was screaming and swearing at the guy that was robbing her, but her guy didn't have a gun. And I'm just like, just give him the stuff. Just give him the bike. Just give him the bike. And then we, like, waddled over. Luckily for me, it was really close to home. I waddled back to the apartment and we rang the police. We went training, like, once again, why is this going to stop us? We rang the police. We went to the police that afternoon and reported the whole thing. The consulate came and they were really supportive and fantastic security. I think got a bigger upgrade as a result of it. And we lost two relatively cheap bicycles we claimed on insurance it's only material possessions it's no impact on our well-being went training the next day did some media phone work from Rio got off the plane and there's an email the coach says Lisa we've got a press conference I'm like what's a press conference and then <laughs> I'm sitting in front of like a whole bunch of cameras going oh my goodness and, and I'm th- all I was thinking is like this is going to be make me late for the train I have to go to work in the morning but it was 15 minutes of questions and I'm on my way and move on I can tell you now from a coach's perspective, so we were preparing for Rio, we were on camp and I was with all my athletes and we watched this press conference of yours and you had the best attitude because it was just like, yeah, we got robbed at gunpoint, but you know what? That's This is what we've been told that will happen and is this stopped us? No, we've already been training since then, so don't worry about what happened. It was just that attitude. So from our perspective, away from that environment, there was so many negative things put on us about the preparation for Rio with the Zika virus and crime and the worry about our families that were traveling over, everything like that. So when this happened, it was a big event, but you just 
you were just reality was yeah it happened but so be it and that's like even now retrospectively like oh it's going to be a bad Paralympics right 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 we had more people at the Paralympics for that weekend watching that they had during the Olympics it was an absolutely phenomenal event like the city embraced us and as I said for Sydney I'm sure it's left a big difference on the lives of people with disabilities in the country of Brazil yeah absolutely and how was your Rio experience as your seventh games how was that in comparison I think like Liesl Tesh is a bit of a workhorse, like it was like going back to work about the process and the whole thing. I mean, we had a fantastic time. We had a fantastic team as well. Like we had three, we had myself and Dan in a two-person boat. We had a three-person boat and also a one-person boat and the Paralympic sailing team won two golds and a silver. So we had a phenomenal team result within the Paralympic Games. We had a great time. We did some hot betting with the Australian sailing team. There was a great integration between the Olympic and Paralympic teams. We're sharing the same apartment at various times in our training things. So I think a lot of understanding and camaraderie was achieved there for future connection between Paralympic and Olympic sport as well. And then going back into the village, mate, just coming and connecting with your friends in the village and watching Paralympic sport and being part of the Paralympic family is just like I'm the sucker who just is embracing it all and stays at the closing ceremony till beyond the end till the security pushes you off the field, taking in that last moment. I love it, absolutely. Yeah, and you did mention there, uh, so you did win your second gold medal in Rio so you'd overcome that I think there's a massive learning curve there for everyone whether they're in sport whether they're in Paralympic sport or able-bodied sport or whether they're far removed from sport the challenges that you have faced leading into those two major competitions that you've just been able to uh, completely overcome and then go on to win gold it's it's an inspiration for everyone it, that's, that's lovely, but you know what? I just think, no, that's how it is. That's just how it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that'll explain that attitude. So we were at our Australian Paralympic Committee Awards after Rio, and you received the Uncle Kevin Coombs medal, for, which is for the spirit of the Games. And so congrats again for that. And I was in awe of your speech as you sat there and you spoke about extreme pride in your para community, as you have in this chat, a uh, bit of disappointment about your your events not continuing yeah, on. Yeah, in 2020. In 2020, not in 2020. So sailing's not in the 2020 Paralympics. So there was a bit of disappointment in your speech there. But then also your idea and passion to create a, a mentoring program for the para community. So you have so much to offer just by being you and continuing to live true to your big visions and show everybody what's possible. It's obviously very important to you to pave these opportunities for the younger generations uh, of people and athletes with a disability. Absolutely. And I have to apologise that the para mentoring program has been on hold for three months but it will reappear and re-emerge and it's part of the conversation that I'm having with lots of people and there's things in place to make it happen but I just think it's a really valuable opportunity to work with people with disabilities and possibly within the framework of the NDIS down the track work with young people with disabilities to be able to connect to their heroes and I think like more and more I see that we don't have people with disabilities who are part of mainstream media conversations part of mainstream heroes so people with disabilities and you talk about Kirk when he saw the Paralympic sport for like the track event for his first time like be great for young people to be able to connect on a personal level and have someone like Kurt Fernley have them under their wing for a period of time and I just think we can up speed young people with disabilities to be stronger and faster not just from a sports person perspective but also just from a 
humanity perspective in Australian society with a mentoring program because we've got some great Paralympians who want to contribute, who are retired, who love to and continue to contribute in various shapes and forms. Well, that's what I was going to say. You say that the the mentoring program has been on hold for the last few months, but I think the mentoring program is there day in, day out. And even chats like this where the younger para-athletes can tap in and just learn from your story and and also from following you guys over the years. So it, I would say that the mentoring program yeah. is there it's very strong. Just it just doesn't that, have the structure. In that formal structure that sort of envisaged in my head. And definitely, like as para-athletes, we have mentored. I mean, I spoke about signing Brody and Cat's legs. Like we've been part of a family journey the whole way. But to just spread those networks to possibly people who don't aspire to be athletes, people with different disabilities who don't aspire to be athletes in the community, I think we can make that bigger and stronger and more powerful. Yeah, definitely. And, and I see the uh, – when I've been to four Paralympic Games now as a staff member <laughs> and I see how when the young ones are around the more experienced athletes and they learn from their professionalism, their dedication, their commitment, everything, the way that they really attribute their lives to their sports, it's really powerful. So to be able to bring that away from the sporting environment and have it in every aspect of their life, I can, I'm can. i excited about what you guys will create with that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I know, I know, I know it's going to be great. <laughs> And you mentioned Kurt Fernley just previously. We had him uh, on an earlier episode of the podcast and we actually spoke about you in depth before the podcast and we had a good chat. I went to his house and, and he had so many good things to uh, to say about you and how proud he was about the impact that you're making in, uh, in and around the, the para and the disability world. I also reached out to Danny DeToro. So Danny and Kurt were our uh, team captains in the Rio Paralympics. And I, what I just, fantastic people. <laughs> oh, what amazing leaders. And I just wanted to ask if, uh, if she could give me a word about you, about Liesl Tesh. And these, I couldn't sum it up. I just wanted to give her exact words. So Danny DeToro said, oh man, not enough words to describe that legend. I've never met someone so positive, passionate, gifted, kind, hilarious and community spirited as her. For me, she embodies everything that's great about our Paralympic movement and how our athletes are so much more than their results. She makes everyone feel like the most important person on the planet and that is a very special gift. Danny, are you making me cry right now? <laughs> and I think that's also, that encapsulates the family that is the Paralympic movement. That is the spirit of the Games. Like the friendships and the respect and the connectedness we have with each other, even though we're completely apart, I think I don't know, a secret strength of what will continue to build the Paralympic movement in this country and around the world. And you are that amazing role model. Uh, and you definitely have certain communities like the, the para communities that you're, you have a big impact in. Uh, you obviously are about to make even broader impact <laughs> with your new role here in Parliament. Uh, I would say, though, also that you're a very strong role model for females Mm. in general and your presence as a female leader is powerful I love it (laughs) thank you so much and it's interesting I have been saying more in the last few months like since I've been in this role than I've like and I just haven't really thought about it there was a sticker on my biology year 11 biology teacher's desk that said girls can do anything these days it would have a hashtag in front of it but that I carry with me and yeah like it's not about disability it is about empowering women and young women in particular to be able to live with that notion that girls can do anything. Do you carry your Year 11 biology book with you everywhere or is it just the... <laughs> it's just the vision. It was a blue and yellow sticker and I carry it within in my head. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's awesome. And Katrina Webb was on the podcast. She was episode number one. And I mentioned to her, but 
I've had some really powerful female mentors in my life and I just feel like I'm meant to be inspired and <laughs> guided by strong, powerful females and I really resonate with them and, and so that's why I'm so excited about being here in your company <laughs> and, and ooze, you oozing your big impact around me. Yeah, no, it's just, uh, it's just how it is. I know and I think women have been oppressed for so long and the young women really don't see the hard times that not not so much myself but our parents' generation have been through to create places of equity and it's pretty nice to be here in Parliament with 50% women representing the Labor Party and that's that's affirmative action if ever there was someone to be the wheelchair user amongst that group as a woman. It's like, yeah, let's deliver. <laughs> <laughs> you see it as a very strong platform for you to grow from. Yeah, and I feel really supported here as well. Like, So I think being coming from the Paralympic space into this space and having a really supportive team around me who know that I'm the rookie and like it's interesting being from that old, old hack in the Paralympic arena to being the absolute rookie in this arena and having a fantastic team around me with some captains and role models to look up to and and ask for guidance I'm, I'm knocking on doors all over the place and I'm really appreciating the information that I've been provided if we look at your life and living the first 19 years as an able bod it wasn't you didn't have a choice but you had a the horrific accident that took you into uh, a whole new world. You started at the bottom there with wheelchair basketball, worked your way up, a lot of years of dedication and commitment, winning a few Paralympic medals. You then chose to go from that sport where you'd won two silver and a bronze to go across to a new sport. And like you said, just compl- you were reading the book of how to operate a boat. You didn't know <laughs> properly how to operate it. And so you chose to go to the bottom there. You climbed your way up and won a couple of golds. So you've been at the top of your game there in sailing and now you've chosen to come back and just in your words there, be the rookie at something completely new. And you know what? I must say that reading the book on how to do the roles and responsibilities in the chamber is harder than reading the book on sailing. So I'm there trying – I'm like, I've got these all this literature, like so much to read about what the rules and protocols and all this stuff's about. I'm like, you know what? I have to go in there and actually watch, watch the show, watch this thing going on to really work out how it operates and every single thing that's new and I'm asking lots of inane questions to try and learn as quickly and that's what I've done in normal sports like asking questions and try and learn as much as I possibly can as fast as I possibly can so I contribute I can contribute as effective as if effectively as I possibly can. What do you feel like is your biggest challenge from a personal perspective in this role? Not as not as what you need to achieve but from a personal perspective for you to continually be you. I think I will continue to be me, but I think the challenge is actually delivering the what the people of the community of Gosford expect from me. Like being able to deliver that, especially we're in opposition at the moment, which makes it tougher because you don't actually hold the purse strings. But the people of Gosford have voted me in there because they believe that I'm going to fight for the community and deliver a whole bunch of stuff to our community that's going to make our place a better place to live. That's a huge challenge and a huge responsibility that I take on. But I believe I'm going to give it the best shot I possibly can. We have fought for a lot of communities <laughs> and uh, one back that's related to sport is you were co-founder of uh, an organisation called Sport Matters. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I'm, I'm a geography teacher. We're slipping way back here, but the, my background's in geography and my – I had a university – So you'd know where Cobar is then? I know where Cobar is, mate. Don't worry <laughs> about that. Um, um, and no, so I've got a big background. One of my university lecturers – 
I had I did two a third, second year and a third year subject in development geography, so overseas disadvantage, and I did some work for the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, looking at data, qualitative data of people living in refugee camps on the Cambodia-Thailand border and really got some insightful understanding as to what absolute disadvantage and poverty looked like. And that was, I think, in my third year of uni. So that sort of sowed a seed of interest in developing nations and the have-nots in the world. And so as a geography teacher, it's my job to go on holidays every single chance I can get. And a lot of my travel's been through sport, but when there hasn't been sport, a lot of that's been in developing countries. So putting on a backpack with my what I call my developing nation wheelchair, which is an old basketball chair that's been modified to rough it in the four-wheel drive and actually going a lot of the time solo into developing countries and then you realise like across the plaza there's another guy in a wheelchair or a couple of guys with walking sticks and obviously got polio and limping and then all of a sudden you're sort of trying to talk to them in my poor Spanish and then the next thing you're at the Bolivian Wheelchair Basketball National Championships and at the end of the game there's only 10 chairs and everyone's limping and climbing up and down the stairs to get into the stadium and bumming up and down the stairs with their sticks. At the end of the game, the men get out of their daytime chairs and the women get into their daytime chairs. The men give their sweaty singlets to the women to play on and that's the Bolivian National Championships. And I'm actually the referee at this event because I know more about the international rules than any of the teammates put together and my daggy old reformed wheelchair is better than any wheelchair that they'll play in. So I'm staggering up and down the sideline in my alpaca jumper trying to keep warm and coaching and refereeing these two teams because I know more about wheelchair basketball elite level. And that's just one example. And there's examples in Quito, there's examples in Jamaica, there's an example on Easter Island, there's an example in Sarajevo of working with people with disabilities to improve their sport or their access to sport or set up and create opportunities to play sport. And then you sort of realise it's actually more than just sport. It's about human rights and people with disabilities coming together are much more powerful to create change in their communities united than they are in isolation. So there's one example in Guatemala in a city called Antigua where the people set up a wheelchair basketball team and then actually as a group of people who wanted access to their city sat on the gutters and actually chipped away the curbs in their street to make ramps so they could move around the city and that's come from a wheelchair basketball platform. So... I've been invited to do various things and then then you realise and my girlfriend and I, Jackie Lauf, went to South Africa together and ran a, a basketball camp over there and when the, one of the local politicians came they said that we realised there's actually three sides to this apartheid. There's the, the black and the white people in South Africa but there's also the people with disabilities who are so disadvantaged and two people from that workshop are now employed to create sporting opportunities for people with disabilities in, in Cape Town. So the power for change using sport as a tool to bring people with disabilities to different place in their communities is really important. So we decided we're going to set up a bit of an aid organisation, a development organisation to do this on a larger scale because doing these ad hoc projects for people's good, but we can do it on a larger scalable space. So Jackie and I sat down and we did a whole bunch of brainstorming. We've got a whole bunch of ideas and we drove down to Canberra to sort of talk to some people about what shape this organisation would be best, where we would best fit. And we drove down to Canberra thinking we'd be working with the Paralympic Committee and the Disabled Sports Organisations and the Disabled People Organisation. We drove back from Canberra going, holy macaroni, we just became sport. So rather than people with disabilities, we're talking to rugby league about inclusion. We're talking to tennis, we're talking to table tennis, we're talking to all the different sports and just making inclusion part of the pathways and part of their community development. So sport can do amazing health, community building things, but it's great to have inclusion through sport as well. So Sport Matters is now a 
international aid and development organisation with government grants working in um, Nepal doing community building and social inclusion after the earthquake in Pakistan using squash as a tool to get women and gender equity um, in universities across Pakistan. We've just had kids from Nepal playing badminton in um, the Gold Coast in preparation and vision and connection with the Commonwealth Games coming up next year, um, working in Bangladesh using badminton again for community building and social change. So there's more to come. That is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> absolutely. It, it doesn't surprise me that you've uh, you've been a co-founder and part creator of something so huge like that and so impactful in so many communities around the world. Life-changing, absolutely it life-changing. It is, and it's so – like these little kids who are from Nepal who are running around on the Gold Coast who are going to various schools who have to go on a ferry an hour to get across the water to get to a school and going out where there's some – staying in someone's backyard where there's a wallaby. And this is all through the guise of sport, but they're going to be community leaders in their own country when they return in various shapes and forms, no doubt. Phenomenal. And I'll link up in the show notes for everyone listening to uh, to Sport Matters so we can jump on there and check it out. Now, Lisa, I could talk to you for hours. I'm <laughs> definitely uh, getting you back on I'll another time. I'll have to go to a caucus meeting before too long. <laughs> I was just going to say, surely there's undoubtedly there's some uh, pretty important stuff that you've got to get to, but I'll definitely get you on another time to inspire and teach us uh, plenty more of what you have to offer. So we'll wrap things up shortly. But I'm all about action and you have so much passion and drive and you're very goal driven so what's your advice on what specific action our listeners can take today to become more impactful in their lives and in their communities but I think you just nailed it with a quiet little word in there with four letters and it's a goal and I think for me it's about setting a goal you don't necessarily know what shape it's going to look like in the end but setting goals for yourself and working towards those goals is I suppose how I tick. As an athlete, you've got these goals and it's not the gold medal, it's about learning to go around the top mark and trim the sails perfectly so you're going at the the perfect speed away from that top mark. So it's incremental steps along the way that lead to the big big thing at the end. And like this job, I don't really know what it is right now. Like every single thing that walks through the door is new. It's a massive responsibility to take on and learn, but I put up my hand to do this job and I'm going to do this job and I'm going to do it well. Well said. Now, before we dive into the fast five questions, uh, I just want to give you a little gift, Liesl. This is a oh, what beautiful. we call a life tee. So we have uh, a few t-shirts that were designed by elite athletes oh, cool. and a couple of para-athletes. Cool. And 100% of the profits go towards their chosen charities. Oh, beautiful. So this one was, uh, it's called the Scotty Reardon Grateful Tee. Oh, and it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's his real blade on the back there that we've, uh, made in from a sketch and put it on the back and that's the the snowy hydro south care helicopter on the front that actually saved his life when he lost his leg in tomorrow when he was 12 years old that's fantastic and labor's trying to put pressure on if we sell our new south wales share of the snowy hydro 100 percent of those funds will actually go to regional development in new south wales so okay it's there nice you go. it's got a powerful message for me as well yeah absolutely well we've just uh learned that we can't actually donate any more of the profits to snowy hydro because government has actually taken over and said we need this in the community so they can't can't accept funds anymore. So Scotty's actually now donating all the profits to a mental health organisation called Batir. So oh, fantastic! Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, no, I had the privilege. The people who won the gold in Rio got to sit upstairs, or some of us got to sit upstairs on the way home, and I had the privilege of sitting across the aisle from Scott. So what a legend! Oh, brilliant! There you go. <laughs> Next time you see him, you can wear the uh, the Scotty Reed and Grateful tea. <laughs> okay, two part question: Where can our listeners learn more about you? So uh, social media and places like that, and how? can I and the listeners help you on your journey? 
Oh, that's a big one. Lisa Tesh AM is our Facebook page at the moment. So I'm pretty busy getting on the computer learning my job. So one of the guys on my team is managing my Facebook. I'm like, it's just got lots of events going through there at the moment. So comments on there and supportive comments on there are really good because I'm getting lots of feedback of stuff people need in the community. But some really positive support comments on Lisa Tesh AM would go down a treat. Um, I know it's, I sort of, I've, sort of stepped away from that social media world that I've been a part of and I think probably in three months time once I've got the job sorted out I'm going to pick up again in the social media world so the Twitter and the the Instagram world of the beautiful things to connect with people on another level mate if people want to come in and watch question time in Parliament House or visit me here in Parliament House bring schools in to say hello I'm more than happy to have a chat so Parliament New South Wales has got a great school education program and my office is at gosford at parliament.newsouthwales.com gov.au I'm learning it all (laughs) people can reach out there as well so yeah through Parliament New South Wales with my name plus there's still loads of information like I look up other politicians on the web but there's hardly any information but there's lots of information about a great Paralympic history of Lisa Tesh so (laughs) it's out there and we'll link all that up in the show notes too so people can connect with you okay just quickly the fast five questions so don't give yourself too much time to uh, think about these just just let it roll off the tongue What's one habit you wish you could change? Um, Not doing yoga in the morning. Sometimes I want to do it every single day. What makes you feel absolutely pumped and exhilarated and energised? Waking up in the morning and going for a walk in the sunrise. And that's an everyday program. Have you ever washed a dog? Yes. I love, I've just got a little nippy rescue dog at the moment. I'm training him so he doesn't bite the constituents in the community, which is a bit of a challenge. But he's coming around and it's really lovely and he's a white guy and he, he's only had a couple of baths, but he likes it, tolerates it. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I don't mean to be that corporate branding, but just do it. That tick shape thing that appears every now and then, just do it. There's no excuses, just get on with it. And what are you most grateful for in your life right now? Being alive. Brilliant. Liesl Tesh, you're a larrikin of a legend with a massive heart and a huge amount of love, passion and pride to offer to the world. Keep smashing your journey, girl. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Brett. Have a beautiful day. Wow. 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 What an emotional journey Liesl has been on. But what a resilient and audacious mindset she has created. If we all thought that we'd face some tough times in life and we're expected to just get on with life, Liesl is a prime example of how we can and should tackle everything that happens on our journeys. Remember, nothing ever happens to us, it only ever happens for us. And when we can accept this and make this our mindset, that's when we're able to learn, grow and develop from every experience in life. If you like this episode, please jump onto your podcast app and give us a five-star review. This helps immensely for me to be able to continue delivering value to you. It doesn't matter what app you're using, whether it's Apple Podcasts, which is formerly known as iTunes Podcast, whether it's Podcast Addict or Stitcher or whatever it is. You guys subscribing and downloading each episode is what keeps this podcast alive. And also, please share with your friends, your family, your community, and everyone you believe will benefit from this podcast. Don't forget to give me your feedback on what you loved and what you want to hear more of, so what value I can help bring into your reality. Reach out to us on social media, so Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Life for Excellence. That's at L-I-F-E-F-O-R-X-L-N-S. And you can also find us at Your Life of Impact. And as always, remember, 
this is your life journey, your life of impact.